We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 13, and we're going to go through a portion of chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, you want to get over to James chapter 4. Uh, there are probably two major approaches to planning vacations. Some of you, when you go on vacation, you're like, man, let's just get in the car and drive, and we will go where the wind blows and the good Lord leads. That's sort of your approach. Uh, very spontaneous. Others of you are planners. You have a plan for each day of the vacation. We'll wake up at 8.30 a.m. We will eat breakfast by 9.15. At 10 o'clock, we'll go on our first adventure. You even have the budget uh, laid out. You're like, at noon, we'll eat lunch at such and such a restaurant. It will cost $42.50 so that we can keep the budget under control for the duration of the trip, right? So you're a planner. Uh, I will confess, I resonate more with the planners than the spontaneous folks. I tend to plan vacations out uh, because I don't like the unexpected. I don't want things to happen that I can't predict or control. Sometimes, though, that kind of stuff happens. Uh, everybody's had an experience on a trip where something gets out of control. Uh, I was remembering this week... Uh, Many years ago, for our fifth wedding anniversary, Shannon and I went on a trip to Washington, D.C., kind of an early uh, anniversary trip because at the time, Shannon was uh, uh, pregnant with our first daughter, with Elizabeth, and so uh, we left a little early to go on this trip thinking this will be a great trip to D.C., and it was, uh, but like I often do, I had everything laid out. I had day by day our agenda, what we'll do in the morning, what we'll do in the afternoon. I kind of had our budget laid out, and so one day... Our plan was to go to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. It's a great zoo, a lot of great exhibits, a lot of great animals. Uh, it was July, so it was hot, but it was a great time. So we're walking through the zoo. We see all of the animals, all the exhibits. It, because it was hot and because Shannon uh, was pregnant, she began to get tired about halfway through us walking through the zoo. So I said, all right, let's just kind of finish the journey. We'll go ahead and walk back out the back of the zoo. So instead of going all the way back to the front of the zoo where we came in, we walked out the back of the zoo and we found ourselves on a sidewalk next to a busy road, but it was okay. We had taken the metro to get to the zoo, so I thought this will be fine. We'll just walk up this sidewalk a little bit and we'll find another metro station. We'll hop on it. We'll get back to our hotel by about 5.33 in time for dinner. Right, And so we're walking along, and after about 10 minutes, I'm looking ahead, and I don't see any metro stations or really even any intersections. And I thought, well, that's odd. I don't know where we're going, but surely if we just keep walking, we'll get to a metro station or at least somewhere we can hail a cab. This was before Uber. So we walk a little while. We don't find anything. Shannon says, I'm, I'm really starting to get uh, pretty tired, and it's hot, and I don't know how much further I want to walk. And I'm like, you know, in classic fashion, I double down. I'm like, if we just keep going. I'm sure we'll find something. So we keep going about twice the distance. We find nothing, nothing on the horizon, nothing up ahead. And finally, she's just exhausted and she says, I need to rest. And so she just sits down on the sidewalk next to this road. And I'm beginning to panic because I'm like, we're far away from the zoo now. We're far away from anything else. I don't know how long she needs to sit there. We can't live here. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. So, so I pick up my, my phone and this was before I had a smartphone or anything. So I call information. I get the number of a taxi service and I'm trying to explain to them, hey, can you just come get us? Like, come rescue us. I'll blow the budget on a taxi. And they're like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm behind the zoo on a road. Like, I don't know where I am. And they're like, thanks, but no thanks, right? And they hang up. Nobody shows up to get us. 
So finally, I'm like, all right, I've got to fix this. So I run back to the zoo, to the back gate of the zoo. And I walk in and I'm looking around. Is there anybody that can help me? And I see this guy driving a golf cart around. And I walk up to him. I go, sir, uh, my wife is stuck on the side of the road behind the zoo. Can you come around and rescue us? And he's like, I'm not a rescue vehicle. Like, I'm sure he was off to feed the elephants or something. You know, he's like, I'm not, I don't do that. That's not what I do. So I, I plead with him. I'm like, look, just come to the back of the zoo. And, and, and uh, if I have to pay you, whatever I got to do. And so finally, I convince him. He comes to the back of the zoo. I manage to get Shannon over there onto the cart. We get back to the front of the zoo. We get to the metro and we get back to our hotel much later than expected. And I think back on that story because it was a painful reminder to me that as much as I plan, things can go wrong. Happens all the time. You may not plan your vacations like that, but you may plan your life like that. You may be a person that you say, you know what, I have my one-day plan, my five-day plan, my one-month, my 12-month, my five-year, and my 10-year plan, and I know how everything's going to go. And maybe if you're a student, you're like, after I finish college, I'm going to get a job as an architect, and then in five years, I'll start my own business, and I will expand my wealth and my holdings from there. And you've got this long plan out in front of you. And I don't want to make you feel bad, but the odds are a lot of that plan isn't going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Right? And so maybe you control your life that way. Maybe you think, hey, if I can just get the calendar under control, everything will be great. I won't have to worry about tomorrow. Or if I can just get the money under control, everything will be great. I won't have to worry about tomorrow. If I can build the 401k enough, I won't have to ever worry about the unexpected derailing my plans. If I can build my business big enough, if I can get the right career then I will sail through life and I won't have to worry about the unexpected derailing my plans. And so what we have a tendency to do is we say, if I can just control my time and I control my money, then my life will go as I plan it. And maybe we think, then I won't really have to trust God with my time and my money. And for those of us who trust Jesus Christ, this is a huge temptation to forget the realities of eternity in the light of the world we live in right now. Even though we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, as we just sang, and rose from the dead, and he's coming back, we believe that if we know Jesus Christ, we have eternity and a promise of a kingdom of joy and perfection and riches beyond anything this world could offer. A lot of times we're really still tempted in the midst of pressure and difficulty to say, hey, I just want to control my world. I just want to live in such a way that I'm comfortable now, that I feel peaceful now, that I don't have to worry about tomorrow. And we forget the reality of Jesus Christ. And as we round the corner toward the end of the book of James, James is also talking to people who are under pressure, who are facing a culture and a world like we are that says, hey, just live for the now, build up your bank account, uh, control your calendar. And James is going to say, as we go through chapter four and then a little bit of chapter five, he says, I want you to understand this. Our plans and our money will fail. You can work hard. You can save and your plans and your money will fail. Now, some of you in here, you're like, look, my money's not going to fail. I'm not invested in the Silicon Valley bank. Like, I'm good. Okay, James says, no, it will. Given enough time, your money's value will disappear. 
given enough time, your plans will go awry. If you have the illusion that you can control your future, he's going to say you're arrogant and you're foolish. Your plans and your money will fail. But then he's going to say, I want you to understand, though, the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God and all the promises of God, that will never fail. And so as you're thinking about where do I want to invest my love, where do I want to invest my money, where do I want to invest my time, James is going to say the greatest way to invest your life is not to hoard, not to manipulate the future, but to invest your life in eternity, to look ahead and live as if we really believe that Jesus Christ died and rose and is coming again because our plans and our money will fail, but the grace of God never will. And to people under pressure who live in a world that is hostile to God, who live in a world that says, hey, there is no world coming, so just live for this one. He says, no, this one, will be judged and remade. So live for the next one. And so watch how James takes us through this, starting in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So he begins, he goes, he goes look. Some of y'all, you've got your plan. You're like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to work a little bit. I'm going to build my business. I'm going to make a profit on such and such a day at such and such a time. And he goes, the problem with that is you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He says, all your presumptuous plans are arrogant and foolish, Now, we're going to see, James is not against planning. You don't need to, like, smash your Google calendar this afternoon or burn all of your planners. He's not against planning. He's against planning with a certain attitude that says, I'm in control of my life. I know where my life is headed. So on April the 13th, I'm going to go to Boston, and I'm going to do some deals, and I'm going to make $16,000, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, and you've got all of these plans, and you never pause to acknowledge you're not in charge of your life. He says, all you are is a vapor, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is reminiscent of Psalm 39. Psalm 39 says, look, you make my days short-lived, and my lifespan is nothing from your perspective. That is, in the grand scheme of eternity, our lives on this earth, they're a blink of an eye. Surely all people, even those who seem secure, even the wealthy, even the successful, even the important, even those who seem secure are nothing but vapor. Surely people go through life as mere ghosts. Surely they accumulate worthless wealth without knowing who will eventually haul it away. Now, as you read that and you read James 4, on the one hand, that's a little depressing. James says, hey, look, here's your life. Go outside on a cold morning like it was this morning and breathe into the air and watch the vapor appear and then see how long it takes to disappear. Seconds, he goes, that's you. That's your life. 
Does that trouble you? Does that unsettle you? Well, James is going to show us it's only troubling if you live as if there is no eternity. The brevity of our lives is only troubling if we live as if there is no eternity. If this is all there is, then by all means, do all that you can to manipulate and control today, tomorrow, next month, next year, and five years from now, because this is all there is. You've got maybe 60, 70, 80, 90 years if you're really lucky, and if this is all there is and you're just a vapor, that's really, 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 really depressing. But if Christ died and Christ rose and has given us eternity, James says, then I can open up my hands and put my plans in the hands of God knowing that he controls time and he controls the universe and he controls what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, if you're making these types of presumptuous plans that's foolish and it's arrogant, your life can change in an instant. Let's hop in an imaginary time machine for a minute, shall we? And go back three years ago this week to 2020. I don't want to bring up too many bad memories for you. But you may remember it was three years ago this week that for the first time, most of us got a sense that our lives were about to change a lot. I remember I was in Dallas for spring break in 2020 seeing family. And at the beginning of the week, we started to get some indications that things might have to shift and change. I'm not making this up. Our plan as a church at the moment for COVID-19 was, hey, we'll put some extra like jugs of hand sanitizer in the foyer. That was it. That was the extent to which we thought our world would change. By about Wednesday or Thursday, school was closed the restaurants were closed. Most businesses were closed. Uh, graduations were canceled. Uh, how many of you had summer vacation plans that got canceled? I had summer vacation plans that got canceled. Uh, people had concert tickets that got canceled and refunded. Some of you owned businesses that got shut down. Overnight, all the plans that we'd made whoo, went up in the air. And some of us are still reeling from it. And yet... Let's get back in our time machine and come to 2023. Some of us are still living as if we control the future. Right? Some of us are still living with the arrogant belief that I, if I hustle hard enough, I can control what's coming. James says, I just want you to understand that's foolish and it's arrogant because you've taken the place of God. God controls the future and God controls the present. So he says, here's what you do. He doesn't say, don't plan, just like wake up in the morning and be like, wherever the wind blows, right? You don't do that. But instead he says, as you plan, you submit your plans to God because you don't know what's going to happen. So you say, God, you may have a change of path for me tomorrow that I didn't expect that will allow me to better honor you with my life. Some of you who are currently in college right now, you may find that you're going to graduate with a degree, and a couple years after college, you're not doing anything related to that degree. Ask some of your parents and the older folks in the room how many of them are working in an area related to their degree. Uh, statistically, it's, it's less than 50%. Now, that's not my way of saying quit college and just go off and do whatever you want to do. But recognize we don't control the future. You don't even control tomorrow. I may have a plan for tomorrow and there's a conversation God wants me to have 
or a difficult circumstance in my life that he allows into my life to transform me into the image of Jesus. So James says, hey, when you're planning out your week, right? My wife and I get together every Sunday and we plan our week. Uh, which kid needs to be where, when, what are we going to eat for dinner, where are we going to go, right? We plan it out. But as you're planning it out, you recognize I'm not ultimately in control, but God is in control. So I submit my plans to the Lord because I can trust him. If he entered into our world to die for our sin and he defeated death and he's given us eternal life, then I can trust him with my calendar. And so it's not as if the words, hey, if the Lord wills, they're not, this isn't a magic formula, by the way. James is not saying like, say, if the Lord wills, and you can wave a wand over all your plans and everything will happen. He's talking about an attitude of the heart that I recognize who's in control. He says, presumptuous planning that's foolish and arrogant because God controls the future. And then he's going to go on, he's going to say that, you know, one of the major resources we try to control, obviously, is our time. The other one is our money. And so now he's going to hit a, a little bit hard on this issue of money. He's going to say, presumptuous planning, that's foolish and arrogant. Greedy hoarding, and those who do it, greedy hoarders are doomed. Follow with me, starting in chapter 5. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resists you. Wow, this is a powerful and convicting passage. And of course, when we read it, the first question that we often have is who is James talking about and uh, how rich do I have to be before this applies to me? Right? Maybe I can wiggle out from under this in some way. But let me explain. Here's what I think James is doing. I do not think James is condemning everybody who makes money. All right, but I think what James is addressing is a particular attitude toward our wealth, just as he has addressed an attitude toward our time. And that attitude is this arrogance that says, I'm in charge, and if I accumulate enough, and if I work hard enough, and if I save enough, then I don't need to rely on God. And so therefore, I will do whatever I need to do in order to win in order to get enough, even if that means I build my wealth by harming other people. In the first century, one of the primary ways, if not the primary way, to grow your wealth was uh, to, to accumulate land, to accumulate property. So if you had somebody who owned a piece of land and they had maybe a health problem where they couldn't work, they, they sank into debt, one of the ways they got out of that debt was by leasing or selling that land to somebody else. So if you had land and you were doing well, you could buy somebody else's land, somebody else who was having a hard time. You could buy their land and then you can make that person work on the land to pay off the debt because you had 
more power and authority in that situation. You could almost do whatever you wanted. You could not pay them. You could pay them too little. You could work them like a dog until they died. You could do whatever you wanted. And there were people who, who piled up plot of land next to plot of land next to plot of land, and they just accumulated all of this wealth. And they had an attitude that said, nobody can touch me because I'm rich. And because I'm rich, I don't have to worry about the future. And James says, I want you to understand that those who live that way, they will face the judgment of God. Remember, previously in the book, he has warned Christians, those who were poorer, against currying the favor of the wealthy. Because he says in the final analysis, their wealth is not what's going to save you. Because Jesus Christ has already saved you. Now he turns, and in a prophetic voice, he addresses those who are wealthy. And I think here he's addressing those who have rejected walking with God in order to trust in their money. And he says, if that's your mindset, if you say, I don't need God, all I need is my money, just know judgment is on the way. And so he says, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming. This is reminiscent of judgment passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. There is a real day of judgment. So he says this directed to the wealthy, but I think he says it in the presence of the church, including those who are not wealthy, for a very simple reason. That those who are not wealthy often want to be wealthy. Those who aren't rich often say, if I could just be rich, my life would be secure. I wouldn't have to worry about tomorrow. If I could just have more than enough. If I could just have as much as that person, as much as Elon Musk, then man, I'd be set. Right? I read uh, this past week that... Uh, it was a recent survey from the past year or two. 60% of Americans, when polled, said, I want to be a billionaire one day. I want to be. 60, 60% said, I want to be a billionaire. 44% said, I think I can be a billionaire one day. I have the tools, the resources, the smarts to get there. Now, statistically, about 43.99% of those people will be sad. Right? They're not going to get there. But we want it, don't we? There's something in your heart and mind. Even if you've got a lot, isn't it interesting? Even if you've got a lot, there's something in there that says, I want more. You know what's, what else is interesting about that survey? They found also that although a lot of people want to be billionaires, also nearly half of people hate billionaires. I found that really interesting. Some of the same people, they're like, I hate billionaires, but I also would like to be one. And the reason I want to be one, even though I hate them, is because I hate the people who are currently billionaires, but I would be a better billionaire. I would use the money better. God, if you'll just give me a chance to be a billionaire and prove that I'll do it better, I promise I'll do it better. Right? That's that attitude that James addresses. Paul addresses it as well. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Notice he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It's often misquoted. He goes, the love of money, that that mindset that says, I want more. I need more. God, if you would just give me more, my life would be secure. He says that attitude is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, seeking after it, chasing after it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In other words, they've said, I I don't want to trust in God because when I trust in God, I have to wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. And yeah, I know Jesus is coming back. And if I trust in him, I have eternal life and the infinite riches of heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get all of that. But what's really going to make me feel better is if I've got money now, today. Because then I don't have to worry about when Jesus is coming back. And Paul and James, they both say, hey, when people do that, you know what? They wander away from the faith and from their trust in God. And what's even more, Paul says, you pierce yourself with a lot of griefs. How many people do we know that by chasing after money have alienated themselves from the most important relationships in their lives? Go look at the personal lives of the billionaires you want to be and ask if you want to be them. And yet still in our hearts, we want more and more and more. James is addressing the arrogant, wealthy person. So you say, am I rich enough to have to worry about James 5? Right? And I, I think the scripture tells us, look, if I've got a lot more than I need, I at least need to think about these questions. Is my money wrapping its tentacles around my heart? Am I utilizing it for the kingdom of God? Or am I just trying to accumulate more? If I own a business, am I treating those who work for me fairly with how I pay them and when I pay them? If I own property, am I just trying to wring the maximum amount of profit by spending the least amount, which means I put people who live in my property in a rough situation? Or am I using what I have to honor the Lord? If I don't have a lot, am I just trying to dream until I can get a lot? Right, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever you put your money, that's where your love will go. If I invest my money in the kingdom of God and the people of God in generosity toward those who have less, that's where my heart and my compassion will grow. If I invest my money in building just myself up, guess where my heart will go? Inward. And he says that kind of wealth, you know what's going to happen? It's going to get destroyed. Moths will eat it. And it'll rust. And, and James says this. He goes, hey, all your wealth, he says, it's already rusting. It's already filled with holes. Now, it's interesting. If you got a lot of money, if you're, especially in the first century, you, you hear that, you go, no, 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 no. Like, no, no, no. Go look, go look at my piles of gold, right? They're, they're, not, they're not rusting. They're not, they're not 
decaying. They're still great. I've got all this money. Look at my clothes. Look at my robe. Look at everything I'm wearing. There's no holes in it. And James goes, that's only because you're not thinking in light of eternity. James says, you need to live as if all your stuff, all your money, all your fine clothes, your big house, your fancy cars, all of it is already decayed. Because once we look in the light of eternity, that's where it's headed. And he goes, if you think you're going to roll up to the judgment seat of Christ with a wagon filled with stuff and money, and you say, God, look what I did, and he's going to be impressed, you got another thing coming because you're going to turn around on that day and you're going to see a pile of junk that's rusted and worthless. And you're going to look at your fancy robe and it's going to be filled with holes. James says, where are you putting your trust? Where are you storing it? Where are you sending it? He calls back to some extent to the book of Ezekiel, talking about the day of judgment for those who have hoarded what they have. And he says, hey, they'll fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. And he says, those who have rejected God in favor of money, their day of judgment is coming. And so I think to the church then, the reason he, he addresses these arrogant wealthy in the presence of the people of God is to say, I want you to trust in God and know the day of judgment for the oppressor, the day of judgment for the hoarder, the day of judgment for the arrogant and the presumptuous, that day is coming. So you can live now in light of eternity and trust God with your money, with your time, with your very life. Presumptuous planners are foolish and greedy hoarders are doomed. So don't look at them with envy and don't allow yourself to become one. But instead, what does he say? He says, instead of that, Here's what you ought to do is be patient. Patient believers are blessed. Remember, James has talked about blessing throughout this book, living according to God's purposes and receiving those things God wants us to have. The fullness of life, reward at the judgment seat of Christ, the secure knowledge that we're growing closer to the Lord. Patient believers are blessed. Look at chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. He says, therefore... Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So he says, look, you can trust in your ability to manipulate the schedule. You can trust in your bank account. But all of that is going to lead nowhere. So he says, instead, here's, here's what I want you to do. Live like a farmer. I want you to be patient like a farmer. Now, this is a really interesting analogy. I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. Maybe some of you grew up on a farm. But if you know anything about farmers and farming, you know it requires patience. Now, farmers work hard. They work really hard. They're not lazy if they want to succeed. They plan. 
They have resources like land that they have to use wisely, right? So he's not saying, like, just, you know, stop planning, just, you know, do whatever with your money, throw it up in the air. Like, he's, he's not saying that. Farmers work hard. They plan. They prepare. But also they have to wait, and they have to be patient, and they have to trust God because they can't control the rain. They can't always control the crop and the harvest, right? So although they plan, although they use their resources well, in the final analysis, day by day, and this was especially true in the ancient world before modern irrigation, they had to trust God to bring the rain they needed and the soil conditions they needed. And so he says, I want you to live like that. Yes, work. Yes, plan. Yes, use your resources wisely. But recognize you're not in control, right? This is hard for me. Uh, This is probably why I'm not a farmer. Uh, I went several years ago through a phase in my life where I was like, I'm going to be a gardener, right? I'm going to be like, I'm going to garden in my backyard like a, like a small-scale little farmer, right? And I'm going to grow food and all this kind of stuff. The problem is that I lack both the skill for that as well as the patience for that, right? So uh, I decided at one point that I was going to grow uh, a strawberry plant in the backyard. I was going to have juicy, wonderful strawberries to eat. And so I grew this strawberry plant, but I didn't really understand. I didn't have even the patience to do a lot of research about how to do it well. So I didn't have a raised flower bed or a covered flower or any, any of that kind of stuff. But I planted this, this plant in the backyard, and then I kind of watered it. I kind of took care of it. And then I walked out there one day, and, and lo and behold, there was a little bitty strawberry growing on my plant. It was green, it was small, and I was like, wow, like when this strawberry reaches maturity, I'm going to have a feast. I'm going to get this strawberry, and I'm going to eat it. I'm going to enjoy it, right? So I watched just this one strawberry. Like it slowly grew, you know, and uh, it got bigger and bigger, and then it started to turn red. It got like little streaks of red in it. I was like, it's about to get ripe. And so I watched it, and it got even bigger, and it got to this point where I was like, all right, like two more days, and, and this strawberry is going to be ready for me to pick and to eat. And this is going to be like the fruit of my labors, right? I'll, I'll post it on Instagram. I grew a strawberry, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I'm watching the strawberry. And I walked out there like a day before I was going to pick it. And I walked out and stood on my back porch. And I was going to go walk over and, and water it. And as I was standing on the back porch, this possum came from like behind the fence. And he lumbered over to my strawberry plant. And he looked at it and he sniffed it and he just goes, and he ate the strawberry and he walked away. I'm not making any of this up. So like I flew into a rage, like I ran out there and I'm like shouting at him, like, get away. I mean, it was too late. He'd eaten it, right? I'm like, get away from my strawberry, go on. And I don't know if you've ever yelled at a possum. They don't care. Like they just look at you, they're like, what? I ate it. You know, like he just kind of stood there and uh, then eventually just lumbered away. And I, and I thought, okay, Think of all the work I did. Well, I did very little work, but think of all the planning I did, all the preparation, all the waiting. But in the final analysis, there was something I couldn't predict or control that killed that strawberry. Right? And James says, look, this is the way that often we have to live in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We pray and we plan, we, we save and we do all of these things uh, to try to use our resources wisely, but you don't know what's coming tomorrow. And you don't know what the fruit of your life is going to be. Only God knows. You can't control outcomes. All you can control is your faithfulness. 
So James says, I want you to live like a farmer. I love that he says, strengthen your heart. That's uh, in direct contrast to what he had said earlier in the chapter about the rich. He says they're fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. He's saying if you're continually gorging yourself by trusting in your wealth, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking comfort and joy in my growing bank account. He says it's like you're eating spiritual Twinkies all the time. It tastes really good now, but it's gonna have consequences later. But he says, what I want you to do, when you, when you trust in the Lord and you look to the future he's promised, you're strengthening your heart. You're building your faith muscles. You're becoming a person of trust and of spiritual health. And he says, that's what I want you to do. Live like the farmer who works and yet also trusts. And he says, in the meanwhile, you don't have to look around and, and grumble about other people, especially other people who might be uh, using their wealth or their time in ways that you're like, man, God, when are you going to judge that person? God, when are you going to do something about that guy, about that millionaire, billionaire uh, person who's controlling everything or or throwing their weight? When are you going to do something? He goes, hey, don't worry. The judge is coming. And so what you do is you be patient and wait on the Lord. He says, as an example of patience, I want you to think about the prophets, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist, who looked ahead to the coming day of the Lord, and they preached the truth, and they were willing even to lose in the short run, because they had a firm belief in the promises of God. He says, look at Job. Now, Job complained some. If you, if you read the book, Job kind of grumbled a lot. Right? But he says, in the final analysis, Job was able to say, God, I trust you. God has given, God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at the end of the book, God recompensed Job for all he had lost. Now, this is not James uh, teaching some prosperity gospel, like God will always give you more money back if you give money or anything like that. What James is saying is, take the long view. That in light of eternity and the blessings of eternity and the riches of eternity and the joy of an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ, whatever you give away or give up today is very, very, very small. And so he says, look ahead with patience, with endurance. Open your hands when it comes to your plans. Open your hands when it comes to your money. Say, God, I want to use it in ways that honor you with a humility that is consistent with my position in Jesus Christ. And so James would say to us two very simple, direct things, I think. As I said, hold loosely to your plans and your money. And maybe you have gotten too attached to your own plans. You say, man, I'm just going to plan everything out and everything will be great. And if the slightest thing changes... You can't handle it. And maybe you need to go back and you say, God, I'm, I'm going to submit my plans not only for this week, but for the next year, five years, ten years. I'm going to submit them to you. God, I, this, these are my plans, but I trust you may have something different. I'm going to open my mind and heart to where the Spirit may lead and the Word of God may lead. Maybe it is your money. Maybe you find deep security from checking your bank account, your 401k every you know, a few minutes every few days, maybe not so much in the last year or so, that doesn't bring you security, brings you sadness, right? Because you're hoping for more and you keep seeing less. And maybe this is the Lord's way of saying, hey, 
it's time to open up your hands a bit. In, in, in the spirit of Jesus Christ, maybe to be more generous, maybe to invest more in, in the gospel, maybe to say, how can I use what you've given my home, my money, my car, whatever I have, how can I use it for the glory of God rather than just to bring me security? So he says, hold loosely. Don't be arrogant and foolish, but hold tightly to the hope of Jesus Christ. Hold tightly to the hope of Jesus Christ. His promises are secure and sure and a secure place to stand. If you don't know Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you you will come to know him this morning and know the hope that he offers, the hope of eternity, that this life isn't all there is. You don't have to just try to find security and scramble for it in this life to build up as much money as you can to plan your your days as closely as you can as meticulously as you can that's not all there is but because of Jesus Christ we have the hope of eternity which means we got plenty of time and we have a relationship with God which means we we have all we could ever need if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life that's where hope comes from, not from your calendar, not from your bank account, not from your career, not from some other relationship, but from knowing Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, the call of James 4 and 5 is to transfer your hope to his kingdom, to open your hands, to open your life and say, God, lead me where you will. I trust you. I trust that Jesus is coming back. So I don't have to worry. I don't have to manipulate the future or try to convince myself I'm in control. But I can trust you, because in Jesus Christ, that's where life is found. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to hear from it this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity, Lord, to to know you. Lord, I pray that we would learn to transfer our allegiance more and more and our hope more and more to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would hold our money, hold our time loosely and allow you to lead us. Lord, we pray we really would live as if we believe that Jesus Christ is returning, that that's true, because it is. Father, teach us to trust you in deeper ways. In Jesus' name. Amen.